This podcast is brought to you by Gistia Labs. Thank you for tuning to Tech People, where real-life tech practitioners share their professional experiences. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning to another episode. Today, we have Doug Wendell, who is a senior software director at Archer DX. Archer DX, just to give you a little bit of background, because I think you're going to want to listen to this whole episode, but just to give you a bit of background, Archer DX is a company that develops pioneering genetic and molecular laboratory technologies to directly combat cancer, amongst other things. But I think one of the biggest things or one of the biggest uh, impacts that they have is helping us further the, the, the fight against cancer. And it's, it's really hard to put into simpler words. You're going to have to listen to, to this whole episode and understand how science and tech are helping revolutionize this, this fight against cancer. I think it's, it's very interesting for those of us that are not scientists. If you're not a scientist, if you think of yourself as an engineer, as a tech person, you might want to listen because there's more to what you have to offer than just, you know, what I call sometimes re-improving the, the like button. Just to give you a, an example of the other side of the spectrum, right? We can be working on, on Instagram and, and, and while that there's definitely great furthering of society through social media and stuff like that, well, why, why don't we bring the same minds, the same intelligent people that are working on these tools to further the fight against cancer and improve humanity in other ways. So anyways, long story short, uh, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Doug was great in, in, in sharing his experience and just trying to give us more context as, uh, as we delve more into to this uh, realm. So anyways, with that said, let's welcome Doug. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? It's been a while since uh, we, we chatted the first time. Uh, yeah, thanks, Carlos. Um, it has been a while. Definitely nice to be on. Like I was uh, just mentioning, I think life is extremely busy at work, but that feels pretty normal these days. So I guess pretty normal. <laughs> and I think everybody can relate. Everybody who's listening understands the kind of the, uh, the challenges that we have in engineering. And not only is engineering uh, at the core of many businesses, let's say like the actual quarter to quarter production and sometimes adding to the top line revenue to, of a company. What's interesting is, for example, what we're going to talk about today is it's, there's more than that, right? There's more to life than redesigning the like button, as some might say. And then there's also more to life than just top line revenue, which is very important, by the way. But there's more impact that we can create. That's why I'm very interested in, and very excited about today's conversation. In fact, let me do a, bit, a brief introduction. So when you and I first connected, I wanted to know a bit more about kind of the technical side of what do you guys do at Archer? And just to confirm, should we call it Archer or Archer DX, the full name? Archer DX is the full name. So I wanted to know exactly what you guys did at Archer DX. In our conversation, it naturally became that uh, we would just talk a little bit more about an overview of the, this molecular pathology um, and genetic laboratories to try to understand how genomic sequencing can actually help the fight against cancer with personalized molecular detection tools, which is what you guys do at Archer DX. But of, of course, how does software and technology play a role in this big mission? So anyways, I think an, another valuable 
a lesson learned from this episode is trying to draw a map to explain how a genetic or molecular lab that does diagnosis works, right? Things like the assay, the, what's, what's a sequencer, what does it do? You know, what are those, some of these repeatable components that exists in labs and how the systems, like the actual engineering systems, play a role to fulfill this role? So that's kind of our topic for today. It's a bit of a mouthful. So hope you guys, hope everybody enjoys conversation. So, Doug, just to get started, tell me a little bit about yourself. I want to get to know the man behind the story. So how did you get into tech? What drew you to, the, to this industry? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, Carlos. Um, I don't think I, when I was super young, I'm not sure if I really knew exactly where, where I was headed. But, um, you know, my parents told me that when I was a kid, I used to take apart all of my toys. I would only sometimes successfully put them back together. But I think that was sort of the, uh, the first moment when maybe I had an idea and my parents had some idea that I was probably headed into some engineering discipline. And then, you know, once I got into junior high and high school, I think I had a pretty decent idea that I was, you know, A, really excited about computers and really got into computer gaming. And, you know, shortly after I got out of high school, I was, you know, I was sure that I wanted to be a software developer. What drew you to, you know, I know that at some point, once you leave school, right, you have so many choices, right? There's something I always say that some people might actually find a little cheesy. People that I work with, I, t- I say that it's easy to find work in our industry, in the software in- industry as a whole. But then we, we have so many places to pick, right? From not, not only are the variables the actual workplace, but the people that we work with. So it's always hard to find a good fit for us. So how did you end up at Archer DX? Um, what, what kind of interested you to specializing into this field? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of it was partly deliberate and some of it was an accident as well. I mean, I think as software engineers, we wind up working in, um, you know, sometimes, especially early on, it's, you know, maybe it's some place that we find interesting or maybe it's just, you know, the place that we got a job. You know, that was definitely the case for me as well. My first actual tech job was, um, you know, even before I started college, I wound up working in a network PC gaming arcade, which was both really fun, but also, you know, taught me some pretty uh, crucial skills, like um, did some web development there and some network engineering, met some pretty interesting people. Actually, as a side note, I met uh, Jeff Atwood there, who's the co-founder of Stack Overflow. We were all uh, big Quake and Warcraft players for quite a while. But anyway, that was, you know, that was kind of my introduction to doing technology work. And um, from there, you know, I wound up at the University of Colorado Boulder in the computer science department. And um, just because I had worked at that previous job, I was able to get uh, another job in the uh, CU engineering dean's office doing a whole bunch of database work, web development, networking, and things like that. And I think that's kind of what started me on my path from, you know, like I'm generally interested in computer science to, uh, I think I want to be doing full stack development. You know, I love seeing a product from start to end, um, being able to do the back end work and then present a user interface that people get to work with. And then from there, you know, there's um, a whole bunch of other things in between. I worked, worked as a contractor for quite a while and really enjoyed that, but ultimately realized that I appreciated the day-to-day interaction with people so wound up um, taking another full-time job at an aerospace software company, worked there for quite a while. And then um, there's actually a, a former database professor of mine that had just sort of contacted me out of the blue and said, hey, there's this really interesting opportunity available at um, CU in Boulder. Here's the deal. It's a, it's a job working in Dr. Rob Knight. He's the uh, PI or the principal investigator for the lab, who's a 
a brilliant and very well-known microbiologist. He had a position open and uh, decided, you know what, this is just, it's so uh, different than, from what I'm used to, but also so interesting and exciting. It's like, what the heck, I'm just going to uh, apply for it. So I did. And, you know, over the course of, you know, it took about six months to actually land that particular job, but I did. I think that's kind of what started me on maybe where I am in my current phase of my career. It's the first job I had where I really realized, like, I'm not just writing software, but I'm actually writing software for some purpose that feels intrinsically meaningful to me. Some of the other really interesting things about um, working at the university were that, you know, most companies are proprietary. The software you develop is you know, sort of held closely to the chest, but because we were mostly grant funded, everything we did, we shared with the academic community. So that was like a big um, sort of paradigm shift in my brain. Also, when I took this particular job, I had done almost exclusively Windows development until I uh, started there. So, you know, I was doing uh, a lot of .NET and C Sharp and some Java coding and things like that, and certainly working in a Windows environment. And this was like a a complete switch into uh, Mac OS and Linux, Python, Oracle, and all these technologies I hadn't used before, plus a domain of knowledge that I didn't really know anything about until I started. Um, <laughs> so yeah, a whole bunch of um, uh, challenges for sure. But I think that's what made it feel particularly rewarding was that I knew that I could come in and I knew that I could contribute right away just with my software engineering and particular database um, skill set. And that, you know, bought me the time I needed to like really get up to speed with what the lab was doing as far as microbiology, you know, what are all these new terms? How does all this stuff work? Um, You know, so drinking from the proverbial fire hose um, pretty much every day, but really enjoying it. One question. So I just want to get set a bit of the stage for a bit of that that shock value. So what is it that, that we're doing, right? I mean, just to get an idea, how do we play a role in this in this industry? This is a very cheesy way to say it, but how are we helping humanity, right? And I, that's, that's the thing that you're actually making a big impact on, right? To quote Archer DX's website, is basically a global fight against cancer using personalized molecular tools. So, but what does that mean? Tell, us, tell me a little bit about, let's say somebody's got cancer and, you know, unfortunately, and they need to, in a, in a way, fortunately, now we have better tools to fight it. Right? We're very far from solving cancer and being able to cure all cancers, but how does Archer DX uh, support that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and certainly it's core to what Archer DX is doing. You know, from, from a technical perspective, what's happening is that we're transitioning from this world of looking at tissue samples under a microscope and literally you know, looking at things that look weird or you know, counting... <laughs> as best we can, what we think the variations might be at a very sort of, you know, gross or very high level scale. We're, we're transitioning from that into, you know, per molecule resolution of um, exactly what the DNA and RNA looks like, um, you know, within your body. So, you know, in the future, I think that the goal of every cancer diagnosis should be to identify some effective therapy that specifically targets whatever form of cancer that patient has. But in order to get there, we have to have the tools to see exactly what happened at that molecular level. You know, some particular drug or therapy could exist, but you won't know if it's effective until you know exactly what happened in that patient and whether that drug can target the pathway that the cancer exhibits. But let's take this for a second to, let's look at the history of this for a second, just to get an idea of how, you know, where we are, right? It's 2018 where we're recording this. So um, it's 2018, but maybe 
listeners are looking are listening to this in the future. Let's say that early 2000s, we didn't have the technology to even dream about this, right? Tell me a little bit about how far we've come. You know, when did it get started in the early 2000s and how far we've come to today in, in the last 17, 18 years? Yeah, um, for sure. So like you said, um, you know, these tools, you know, they did exist 20 years ago, but they were extremely expensive to use. So I uh, maybe don't quote me on this actual figure. I think that the Human Genome Project was on the order of uh, about a billion dollars or something like that to, you know, actually sequence that first human genome. But, you know, around like in the very early 2000s, it was about $100 million to sequence a single genome. So that would be like you or me or, you know, pick somebody off the street. If you want to uh, see what their genome looks like, it's going to cost you about $100 million. So that's the early 2000s. And then by like, you know, mid, late 2000s, that drops by an order of magnitude to about $10 million. So, you know, it's a lot cheaper, but it's still, you know, way more expensive that can ever be practical on a, you know, sort of day-to-day scale. And then, you know, moving on in time, like around 2010 or 2011, it's about $10,000 to sequence a genome. And then, you know, here we are today in 2018, we're down at, you know, certainly under $1,000 to sequence uh, an entire genome. And realistically, what's also happening is that typically when you're looking for cancers, you're not using um, what's called whole genome sequencing or WGS. We're doing what's called targeted sequencing in which we're looking at a much smaller section of the human genome. What that allows you to do is run more samples on a single sequencer run, and that makes it just you know cheaper in general to run. So you know realistically at this point, we're talking uh, probably a you know hundred or a couple hundred dollars a sample, even for targeted um, cancer sequencing. And all right, for everybody listening, just bear with us. We're going to go into some definitions here in a second because I know that you're going to need to understand what a sequencer is, even to you know be understand this, the the impact that as an engineer you can bring to this industry. So Doug will help us get there. So keep, keep, keep bear with us for a second. So from about $100 million to under $1,000 in less than 20 years. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's, it's, and, and not only that, it creates a, a, a different problem, right? Bioinformatics is an, is an industry kind of born out of that problem, isn't it? I mean, the amount of data, let's say, that, is, uh, that comes out of the sequencers is tremendous. And, uh, you know, maybe you can give us a, a bit of actual size of in terabytes or something. Uh, but what sort of impact does it create in terms of now thinking of an engineering organization to support this sort of load? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can imagine when it was $100 million to sequence a genome, there's not a whole lot of those rolling around. And so the um, software tools didn't need to be nearly as robust as they need to be now. But, you know, to answer the question of what does a typical sequencing run look like in terms of how much data is coming out of it, you know, I would say our typical uh, assays or our typical uh, sequencing run for a single sample is probably on the order of somewhere you know around like two to ten million reads um, for one person. So you know that results in a fair amount of data to look through, and that's just one person. So what's happened is that you know, the cost of doing the sequencing is relatively inexpensive. In fact, I would say it's almost a non-cost when you look at that in respect to or, or in relation to what are the costs of developing the software pipelines and what is the cost of the actual computation. That's far more expensive now than the actual sequencing is. So I think the, the problem domain has shifted from how do we generate a genome to how can we reasonably process um, hundreds or thousands of genomes in a single day? 
and get accurate results. Just for the the sake of of making sure we're hitting our terms, what is a read? Ah, so that specifically means um, a single strand of DNA as read by the gene sequencer. So typically what we're looking at at Archer are reads or DNA molecules uh, that are about 150 bases long on either side. So that means it's literally a string of molecules, 150 molecules long that goes into the gene sequencer. The gene sequencer can read that and tell us exactly what molecules they were and in which order. And then we get a text representation of that on the other end. So for every single one of those reads, we get um, a few lines of text describing you know, what is it in terms of A's, C's, T's, and G's. Those are the molecules that make up DNA. And then for each one of those samples, imagine that we get, let's say it's 5 million of those for a particular sample. And then there are also two files per sample. So double that. It's about 10 million different lines that we're interested in for a normal sample. In, in our first conversation, you spoke about a very sad story. But the, in, a, in a way, a very powerful story uh, about, again, the impact that we could have in somebody's life here, right? I, I want to go specifically to that, to that example. So you mentioned uh, that uh, at Archer DX a couple of years ago, I don't know exactly what the time frame. Tell us a story about this, this patient that came that you guys tried to help and how somebody in the past couldn't have even, even been helped, but how Archer DX was able to, to, to step out and, 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 and help out even, again, it was a sad story, but it, it, it tells us about the power of the future of this. Yeah, definitely. It's a very um, bittersweet story. But um, yeah, so this is a, a story about a little girl. Her name is Zeta Matson. She was diagnosed with cancer when she was about three years old. She spent uh, the next nine years going through chemo, radiation, other drug therapies, she also had multiple surgeries to remove tumors, and she had a complete hyster- hysterectomy, excuse me, and a splenectomy and, you know, other tissues removed from her body. So, you know, you can imagine that, you know, this poor girl has been living with cancer for nine years and has been through uh, quite, a, quite a bit of stuff that a normal girl would never have to go through. But, you know, by 2014, it seemed that, you know, she might be actually winning the battle. Then in 2015, uh, a new tumor was found that wasn't responding to any of those previous treatments. So her tumor DNA was actually sequenced, but it didn't reveal any new treatment options. Then one of the guys at our company, a former employee of Archer, he had just happened to see this story. I think maybe his wife who saw the story on uh, probably Facebook, but somewhere on social media, this surfaced. Um, And so Archer reached out and said, hey, you know, um, we may find something, we may not. You know, if you can get us um, the slides or really just can you get us the um, tissue sample, we'll run it and see what we can find. Maybe just as a a partial aside here, um, one thing that Archer can do that a lot of other companies can't do is that we have a particular technology that lets us find genomic rearrangements without having to know all of the genomic rearrangements. So in most cases, you need to know both ends of a change. But in Archer's case, you only need to know one end of that change, and then we can find whatever happens to be on the other side of that particular rearrangement. So, you know, back to the Zeta story, um, we got the slide, we're able to sequence it. And in fact, what we found was something that was a novel gene fusion that hadn't been seen before. It's a gene, um, AKT1 was the gene. It's a known oncogene, meaning that it is implicated in cancers, but it hadn't been seen as a gene fusion, which is a very large rearrangement of genetic material. So we were able to actually uh, find that and then, you know, through some subsequent analysis and some partnerships with um, some other, you know, local and non-local companies, 
we discovered that there are, in fact, clinical trials for this particular drug, but unfortunately, they were uh, were all for for adults. So, in, you know, Zeta was too young. However, we were able to, you know, again with it's all all through partnerships in and um, good relationships. Um, we were able to do this through um, MSK, able to get a, an exception for one of the clinical trials, so that Zeta could go on this drug. So she started that drug, I think, in um, 2016, and it took about three weeks and most of that tumor burden had just disappeared from her body. So it just kind of shows you the power of these types of diagnoses. If you can understand exactly what it is, and if there is a therapy for it, it can basically wipe out the cancer in a very short period of time. The really unfortunate part of this story is that, you know, Zeta did finally pass away in early 2017. Probably what happened here is that Zeta had had cancer for 10 years. And what happens with cancers is that, you know, they're constantly constantly reproducing. And every time those cells reproduce, there's a chance that one of those new cells isn't going to look exactly like the cells that came before it. And so, you know, over a long period of time, you wind up with not just, you know, one or a few populations of cancer cells, you wind up with many different types of cancer cells, you know, some of which are going to respond to a treatment and uh, some of which won't. And unfortunately, that's probably um, what ultimately wound up getting Zeta is that this new tumor that appeared was resistant to the medication, the, you know, the new medication that was in that clinical trial. And unfortunately, you know, she finally passed away. You know, this, this is, as you said, is a, is a bittersweet story, but one, it, it speaks greatly of, of Archer DX and how you guys stepped in and, and were able to, you know, lend a hand in a time of need. But also it gives us a bit of a story of, of what the future might look like for future cancer patients. Uh, unfortunately, it is something that we as, as a society have to face. And um, the way I think about it is what, what more do you want to be motivated, right? Because it allows us engineers to kind of team up together and try to fight this thing with our knowledge. So hopefully more people will come into the industry. And I think that's why one of the things that we're going to talk about towards the end of the interview is how can we also motivate these people that might think that they need to be a, a biologist or, or a geneticist to be part of this fight. So before we, we talk about that, though, I want to talk a bit more about Archer DX. I want to understand the role of the company and how it plays within the, the, the market. And, you know, I think once you explain kind of the role within the market, we then can talk about how, let's say, other genetic and molecular diagnostic laboratories work with Archer DX or you know, multiple patients and, and so forth. Because I know that you guys are a lab, but also you work with other labs. I want to get a bit of that context of how you perform in the, in the market. Yeah, for sure. And just as a point of clarification, we, we're not exactly a lab. We don't really do, um, you know, beyond uh, our own R&D work, we don't really do sequencing um, for the most part for other people. But what we do is produce all of the um, the assays. So this is like literally uh, a kit or an assay that we produce is a, a box of components that, you know, um, somebody will buy that contains all of the necessary you know, chemicals and reagents and primers. And I'm sure we'll get into what that means in a minute, but contains all the necessary parts for you to actually purify a tissue sample, you know, breaking that down to only the DNA and RNA components, amplify the regions that we're interested in and basically get that ready to go on the gene sequencer. So, you know, that's like the physical product that Archer produces. So, you know, that could be uh, the purchasers of those, that product could be anybody from like, um, you know, big cancer centers to research hospital to anything in between there. 
And then also, you know, Archer is certainly um, heavily in the business of uh, writing software for both data analysis and also as an upfront process for how do you design these assays? How do you know where in the genome, you know, to target these regions we're interested in? So we have a software product that sits even before the chemistry is designed or before the primers are designed that lets us figure out how do we uh, focus on the particular areas of the genome and produce reads downstream that are going to be usable in our analysis software. So is that where you come to play? Tell me a little bit about your role at ArcherDX. And also, you know, we already spoke about the, this piece of software, but is that the only place where technology plays a role or in what other areas, maybe distribution? Is, 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 it, is it mainly in the periphery of how the company interacts with others? Or is there a lot of engineering internally for R&D purposes and such? All of the above, for sure. <laughs> so my particular role at Archer, um, I started in Archer at, uh, or in 2013. The company was pretty small at that point. There were two other software developers who had been recently brought on and then me as well. So I was sort of like the first you know, commercial full stack developer to come on. The other two guys were both um, very talented bioinformatics developers and then I sort of brought in this other skill set of some genomics background, but really understanding like how does a software product uh, evolve and live you know, in, in the real world when we have a lot of people using it? How do we distribute it? How, do, how are people going to use it? And, and so forth. That's why I was brought on um, to help launch all the initial software products. And then you know, at some point I was um, promoted, <laughs> in, in quotes perhaps, but promoted out of development and then into full-time management. That happened probably three years ago. So, you know, help build up the, the software team as, as it exists now. And then, you know, most recently I've moved into a role where I'm primarily focused on looking at the, you know, the next big growth phase of our company. So I think in true agile fashion, we developed our software with a very focused need and um, developed and deployed the things that we needed in that moment. And, you know, where we've been for the last couple of years now, and especially now is looking at, um, you know, really strong DevOps practices. How do we package and deploy our software? How do we get it through a continuous integration pipeline and, you know, out to our customers really quickly? And then also one of our big challenges is that, you know, as you alluded to earlier, it's a lot of data that requires a lot of computational power to process this data. So going forward, how are we going to manage the fairly large amount of compute resources that are required to process all of this data? So now you said at the beginning was two engineers. How many engineers are there now at ArcherDX? As far as the the uh, software team itself is concerned, we've got well, what do we have? I think we're around a little more than twenty full time, and we have a few interns on staff right now, and we have a few recs open. So we're hiring, but I think you know we'll probably wind up staffing up at probably um, around let's say twenty five ish, you know, full time software developers this year. And you know the the reason I asked that is because. I think, as I said earlier, there's there's somewhat of a fear of this industry. Have you seen that uh, across maybe some peers that don't work with you that might be, I don't want to say fear, but, um, you know, that, that uncertainty, do, do I fit in? Is that something that you've seen across maybe other other peers that don't work in the industry? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I can sort of directly relate to this as well, you know, feeling fairly intimidated coming into this field in which there's a very deep and, you know, I guess, complex or complicated body of knowledge. So I think that's pretty normal. But I, you know, I guess the message I would convey is that uh, as long as you are 
you know, you're an intelligent person, you have good attitude, and you have, you know, solid fundamental software engineering skills, I think you can basically jump into any domain of knowledge and you can be productive almost immediately. And, you know, like I was saying before, that can buy you enough time to really get your feet underneath you as far as the particular domain of knowledge is concerned. I think we should do something. We should do a bit of an exercise. Let's think of a the, the, the typical commercial application of, say, again, a client of RGDX. So this is actually an actual client of mine. We actually work with a couple of, of genetic, molecular genetic labs that do tests for cancer prevention and also for parental planning, so forth. And I'd like to get an idea of, you know, let's say for, for us, when we first started working with them, it was a big unknown, like, what are we doing again, right? The, we, we didn't even understand the big picture of the actual workflow of how a sample came in and how they actually charged insurance and all that stuff. And all the systems in between, we've been able to now build all their, all their systems. We're very intimate with the process of the life of the patient records, not necessarily at the lab level. And that's where you know your expertise might come in. So give us a bit of a, of a high-level understanding of what happens at the lab, right? Because that's, if anything, the a regular lab like our client is going to be the one that buys your consumables, right? They're the ones that buy the sequencers. They're the ones that have the direct contact with the doctors or the the, the actual providers and the insurance and the patients. They're they're the ones that will do, let's say, the big bulk of this in in a commercial way. Of course, utilizing companies like ArcherDX or buying products and services from companies like yours. So give us a bit of an idea. So a patient goes to the doctor. What happens? So a uh, patient goes to the doctor and, um, you know, they went in for some reason, of course. So um, let's say they have something like, um, you know, there's a tumor, for example. So what would happen in that particular case um, most likely is that that tumor is going to be biopsied. So they'll take a tissue sample of that tumor. And then, you know, where Archer comes in is that if this is a lab that works with Archer, they will already have our kits on hand. Um, you know, for, for example, we sell kits for looking for both um, DNA variants and RNA variations in solid tumors. So, you know, they would take that tissue sample, they would purify that sample. So you want to get rid of all the genetic material that isn't DNA and RNA. And then you, uh, amplify the regions of that that DNA that you're interested in looking at. So like I was saying, um, you can do what's called whole genome sequencing. And basically what that means is that you're kind of utilizing the power of the gene sequencer to get reads from all over the genome. And then, you know, normally what you would do with that is assemble that so you could see what a genome looks like, but you could also sort of use that as, okay, you know, we were looking for uh, variations in this particular gene that we know is, is often involved in cancers like this. You would look at those particular genes and see how many reads cover that particular gene, i.e., you know, coming off the gene sequencer, how many of those reads coming off the sequencer actually map to the gene you're interested in. But in whole genome sequencing, you just don't really get enough depth of coverage. There's not enough of those reads to be confident in a call. So that's why Archer is typically doing targeted sequencing in those cases. So what we do is we, uh, we have these little things called primers that uh, they basically stick to single-stranded DNA in a particular place and let you amplify the regions that come after. So, you know, maybe there's hundreds or a few thousand of those different regions. We'll amplify those 
basically for the purposes of noise reduction so that, you know, that amplified library goes on the gene sequencer. The gene sequencer is then going to see a whole lot more of the things that we're interested in seeing than it will of things that we don't really care that much about. And then, of course, you know, in the resulting, um, they're called FASTQ files, but these are the text files that show up at the end of the sequencing process that will contain, you know, mostly reads from regions that we're interested in looking at. So, you know, from the uh, patient walking in the door to, um, you know, getting a data file out the other end of the sequencer is basically that process. And then, you know, once we have those data files, that's where the um, the analysis uh, software comes into play. So we'll load those files into our software. Those are these HL7 files, correct? Um, those are different. So what we load into our software, they're typically fastq.gz files. So those are just gzip compressed text files that represent all the reads that came off the sequencer. Got it. There are other files as well called BAM files that are produced by, for example, the ION um, series of machines. We can also take those as well. But yeah, so that's what's going on to, or into our analysis software. And, you know, that's a whole process unto itself. I don't know if we want to dig into that now, but I can. No, I think I, I just asked about, I was curious a little bit about the, um, the. I've heard some issues with HL7. I don't know if it was related to that. Ah, yep. Yeah, not in our particular case, no. Got it. So let's say the, the reads come out out of the sequencer, right? But then one of the things that I'm always wondering, are there any patterns that we can recognize from having you know, a lot of sample runs in the past. Like, what happens with that data? Is that data somehow reusable in the future to make some sort of analysis? Yeah, so you certainly can do things like that. Um, there are different ways to think about this from, you know, just sort of a, uh, you know, purely tackling it from the, the angle of your question, you know, can you use prior analyses to inform future analyses? That's definitely possible, you know, so we call that a meta-analysis in this case where, you're utilizing data from more than one particular one to inform the results of, you know, a particular sample. There are some really specific ways in which we do use that in um, the Archer analysis pipeline. One of the, uh, well, taking a step backwards, there are errors that crop up in quite a few different places in this whole process. It could happen during, um, you know, during sample prep, there's any number of things that could go wrong. And during sequencing as well, you know, sequencers uh, certainly aren't perfect. I would say error rates are somewhere between like, one base in every thousand to ten thousand to even as much as like five or ten percent for certain sequencers and in certain conditions. But basically what that means is that, you know, there are errors coming through these data files that, you know, if you didn't do anything to clean those up, you would probably call those as a variant in your analysis pipeline. So a false positive, basically. That's exactly right. Yep. So, you know, one way of dealing with that as it applies to the question that you asked is um you could basically use additional samples to determine, okay, we know the sequencer produces error. Sometimes the sequencer produces systematic error, i.e. if you have a whole bunch of um, you know, the same bases leading up to uh, an error coming from the sequencer, sometimes that the sequences leading up to that can actually produce that error. So there's a motif in the DNA that causes the sequencer to misread something. So that can happen. But also it can just be completely, you know, stochastic. It may, you know, in one read it shows up here and another read it shows up there. And then, you know, for the next um, couple hundred reads, it's completely clean. So one way of doing some uh, data cleanup is to do, we call it outlier detection in our particular pipeline. But basically what it does is it utilizes multiple samples that are run at the same time, or it could be samples that have been run um, prior to this, like a, a normal data set that you would compare your data to. And what we use that for is looking at, you know, how noisy is each base coming off of the sequencer, typically speaking? 
we can do a statistical analysis of that to say, all right, you know, this particular base coming off a sequencer tends to have, you know, this much noise or it has this much error rate associated with it. So if it's a particularly noisy spot, and we know that because, you know, we've seen it um, happen from time to time or, you know, time and time again, we can set a very high threshold for calling that variant. So, you know, let's say 10 of every 50 times we sequence that base, it's an error. That means that for us to actually call a variant in that position, we need a lot more evidence that the variant actually exists. And then conversely, there are areas that, you know, we would say are very quiet, where typically there are no errors that show up. And so, you know, if we see an error shows up there, maybe one in every, uh, you know, 100,000 samples or 10,000 samples, if you see something show up there, the statistical threshold is quite low. And you can be fairly confident that even with a low amount of evidence that you should probably pay attention to those results. Are you sure you're not like a geneticist and biologist and you're just you're just playing software engineer (laughs) because you know about you know, such a depth of of the actual science. Like, I commend you for this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I think it's just, um, if you're excited about what you're doing, and I do love what we're we're doing, I think it's just motivation to learn as much as possible about it. So I think it's just an outgrowth of that. uh, There are a million people that know so much more than I do. And, you know, all of the actual geneticists, biologists at the company know far more than I do, but <laughs> I don't know if it'd be dangerous and at least talk about it on a podcast. Well, you know, um, definitely getting the, that sort of insight from a software engineer and being able to see kind of how you see this world and through your eyes, through the sensitivity of, of again, of a developer that, uh, as I said earlier, you might want to work at, I don't know, Facebook and really improving the like button. Nothing against Facebook and doing that, by the way. But but th- there's definitely a bigger impact when you're seeing this sort of visceral sort of change uh, in, in the world. So anyways, this is just something that I that I admire. You know, I admire what you're doing. I admire everything that R2DX is doing and, and uh, you know, all their engineers that are brave enough to jump into this field. This is this is very you know very exciting stuff. All right, so I think we're nearing the end of, of our episode. I have two last questions for you. So, what is what would you recommend any engineers that are interested in in the industry that you know again they might be even even listening to this episode might be a little bit like whoa what was what was all that? How can they learn a bit more to make sure that um, again if they come and apply at Archer DX that they have some of their science up to date, that they're somewhat read into this industry. What will be some resources that you might share with us? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I guess I would say a couple things. One, as I had mentioned before, I really do believe, and this is you know a little, little insight into our hiring process here too, but you don't necessarily need to have that really solid domain knowledge. You just need to have a solid technical background. But even more important than that is somebody who's, you know, Probably having a really good attitude is the number one thing that, you know, stands out right off the bat. And then, you know, to obviously be an intelligent person and a good problem solver. I think if you've got those two things and a good technical foundation, um, you're already setting the stage for being successful. You know, obviously being excited about, you know, if you were to apply at Archer, being excited about what Archer is doing, I think is also a pretty critical component because people do the best work when they're working on something that they really care about. But, you know, on a more practical level, you know, if you're really interested in bioinformatics, there are certainly quite a few resources out there. I think one of the challenges with bioinformatics is that it's not just an understanding of the bioinformatics algorithms like 
how do genome aligners work? How does a variant collar work? You know, things like that. You also need to understand the underlying biology of what those algorithms are actually trying to tell you. So, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff to dig into, but probably if I were to give, you know, one particular resource for people to get started with um, actually writing bioinformatics code, I think it's at rosalind.info. They have a bioinformatics course that sort of starts you from really early on, like literally um, counting, you know, the number of G's and C's that are in a uh, genetic sequence. But it turns out that's actually really, really important for things like primer design because it affects the melting temperature of those DNA primers. So, you know, they may seem like they're trivial problems, but they're actually not. They're sort of sneakily teaching you uh, about bioinformatics while they, you know, work you through this fairly long problem set. I think that if there's people that are suited for this sort of challenge, it's definitely the us, right, engineers. And with that said, of course, right, the, this is obviating the, the actual scientists. Um, but I think that being able to come to this field and provide some of our own powers, if you would, to to support them, I think is is what's going to move this field forward, right? Definitely. By the way, I know I was I was ending this, but I have another question. I'm curious, what do you see the future of this? Right, like right now, as you said, it sounded kind of you know futuristic. The this the story about Zeta, unfortunately. But let's see. Let's let's think of like the future. Like, what would be a, a a good future look? How would a positive future look like in terms of, let's say, all doctors are using these tools. So yeah, what does it look the future look like for somebody like everyday person who wants to have a doctor that is is using the latest and greatest genetic tools? What 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 it might look like for them if they have again developed cancer or any illness like this? Yeah, for sure. Um... You know, I guess just as a, you know, capping off Zeta's story is that, you know, I think there's a pretty good chance that if her cancer had been found much earlier, that she might actually still be alive today. And so, you know, I think the lesson there is that, you know, if we can pick these things up much earlier, don't give these cancers a chance to, you know, replicate themselves into so many communities that they're not really easily treatable, we're going to be in much better shape. So, you know, that's definitely part of it is, you know, trying to transition from this um, reactive stage to a more proactive stage. You know, as far as future types of analyses in this field, one of them is CTDNA, which stands for um, circulating tumor DNA. This is a great tool for catching certain cancers early, or even um, you suspect somebody may have cancer, but you can't even identify, you know, where it might be coming from. You know, what winds up happening is that because cancer cells are reproducing themselves faster than normal cells, you know, those cells still die and they decay in your bloodstream. If you take a blood sample, you have certain kinds of cancers, you can actually see a signature of those cancers in the bloodstream. It's at a very, very low, um, a low rate. So you need even more sequencing power to detect these things. Typically, you know, maybe you need uh, 10 or 15 or 20 million reads to get enough resolution to see them. But, you know, what it means is that, you know, maybe you know, in 10 years, you go into the doctor's office and they take a blood sample and they run that blood sample through a panel that's actually looking for cancers as well. You know, not just looking at, um, you know, <laughs> a whole bunch of other things I don't know about, but um, does this person have um, a, a signature of any particular cancer? And if you do, you know, hopefully there's um, a therapy to wipe that out in its very early stages such that it never becomes that long-term problem. Man, that's, you know, that's that's kind of the dream uh, future. and I, And I hope we get there because I don't need to speak to 
to kind of talk more about this because it's a potentially a sensitive topic. But, you know, I hope we get there soon. So, and, you know, again, I thank you for being part of this and uh, and spending some time with us on the show, kind of explaining it to us, giving us a, a bit of, a, of, a, of an overview as to uh, not only what you were working on, but also potentially how other engineers listening to the show might be interested in, in stepping into this fight. So, Doug, thank you so much for joining the Tech People, the Tech People Show. This was a great episode and uh, can't wait to, to hopefully have you back or meet in person sometime. That sounds great, Carlos. Um, either or both of those sound great to me. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carlos. 